But it doesn't feel to me like it was preordained that somebody like, you know, Senator Elizabeth Warren would be anti-crypto. You know, like if you actually think about, you know, sort of disintermediating the big banks, giving individuals more control, et cetera. Like to me, it's like there could have been a different version of the universe in which like Elizabeth Warren was a massive degen, right? Like, am I wrong about that? Like, it's not clear to me. Like, that was her, that was the CFPB was like, you know, the big banks are, you know, are like hurting the little guy. We need to give power to the people, etc. This is a, a foundational transformation we see happening in the economy. DeFi and blockchain are redefining business, the economy, and our society. Welcome to another episode of Redefined. I'm your co-host, Jeremy Allman, alongside my awesome friend and co-host, Megan Guy. What's up this week, Megan? Really happy to be here, and I'm super, super excited to be here with today's guest. Uh, Zoe Weinberg is with us. She's the founder and general partner of Ex-Ante, um, which is a VC firm that recently was launched um, that's focused on uh, agentic tech which we'll get much more into um, as we get into the, the show today. But um, super psyched to be here. So, so Zoe, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? It's not every day that we get to have someone to chat with uh, on the pod whose work has taken them from, you know, the front line of presidential campaigns to, uh, you know, the front lines of Iraq uh, and, um, you know, now now to being kind of uh, at the leading edge of some really interesting stuff in the venture world. So tell us a little bit more about um, how you how you kind of came up with the idea for Exanti and what's brought you here. Thanks, Megan. And uh, thank you to both of you uh, for having me on the show. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I have a um, fairly unusual background uh, among uh, among folks in the venture world. I've been in investing for a long time, uh, essentially straight out of uh, undergrad. Had always been really, really interested in international development and national security and foreign policy, uh, and so it was a very sort of natural jump for me um, uh, to work at the World Bank. Uh, I was at the International Finance Corporation which is the private sector investment arm of the World Bank, and ended up doing a lot of deals and work uh, in conflict zones. Um, as you sort of alluded to, Megan, uh, ended up spending time in places like Mogadishu and Somalia and Juba and South Sudan and DRC. Um, I then later on worked as an aid worker in Iraq during uh, the period in which um, Iraqi forces were retaking the city of Mosul from ISIS. And, you know, I I became totally fascinated with all the ways in which technology uh, was being used in conflict, both on the battlefield itself, but also, you know, the ways in which uh, groups were often subject to a lot of surveillance and manipulation um, and oppression via technology, uh, but also all of the many ways that people were leveraging technology uh, to to exercise freedom, right? Whether it was private communications, um, or you know, the example I sometimes give give is uh, uh, mining Bitcoin. Um, I got to know some Bitcoin miners in Iraq, and I think they really opened my eyes to the ways in which uh, there could be real financial freedoms uh, attained by using permission permissionless blockchain. And uh, and so I felt like I was seeing both sides of that. It was really fascinating 
to me. I never thought that I would find a way to translate that into a venture fund. Uh, but that was a, that was what originally sparked the interest. Amazing. Um, I, you know, what I loved the first time we met and we kind of started chatting about this, I love that you had a non-traditional background because I think, you know, as we chatted about a little bit, like that's part of what got me interested in this space. And I love the idea of folks thinking about technology, not just for its own sake or for the sake of building a big business, but um, really how it can it can help people and transform our societies and, and thinking about that from all the different sides. So awesome to have you here. I know, you know, for Jeremy, that's a, a key driver too. And we love those conversations on this show. Yeah. I mean, I mean, one of the things I really appreciate, you know, that, that your perspective would be really fun is so many people look at things like Bitcoin and blockchain and sort of emerging technology at, from the first world where everything is safe and re relatively um, secure, right? But where you see the most growth in these places um, are often where the system is broken, whether it's a broken financial system, massive rampant inflation, whether it's authoritarianism, where um, folks are trying to, you know, avoid government surveillance um, or just otherwise some level of oppression. Um, and so, you know, I've personally seen it um, in, in a bunch of areas in Central America that's been widely growing um, in things like Bitcoin. Um, Zoe, you've been on the front lines in all kinds of places. I, I'd love if you maybe could share a story or some area where you're seeing the most impact at kind of what's called the frontier zone, where technology is actually, you know, sort of pushing back a little bit of a quiet revolution against these sort of authoritarian um, areas. Yeah, I mean, Jeremy, I really could not agree with you more that oftentimes uh, the best innovation really comes from the places in which people have to be resourceful. And it's um, it's not just a question of experimenting with tech for the sake of uh, innovation, but really out of like serious and acute need. So, for example, you know, I uh, have had the real privilege of getting to know, you know, some some developers who are working on new VPN technology in places like Iran, um, where, you know, it really is um, sometimes a, a life or death uh, uh, situation and the stakes are extremely high. Um, I talked to an entrepreneur a while ago who's who's building in the circumvention space, who had grown up um, in mainland China. And, you know, he he was very quick to say, you know, I'm an expert in this because I've been building circumvention tools since I was eight years old, you know, to play games on the Internet. Right. And um, yeah, I think that's like often where a lot of innovation comes from. And I, you know, to your point on on, on blockchain related technologies, too, I think. Um, you know, the sort of need for a store of value and, and a currency that is outside of the potential risks that come with um, any sort of government controlled uh, form of currency is is huge. Um, you know, the way that this often comes up uh, in the in the course of our investing and in the in the context of the fund is that uh, people often assume that that privacy tech is sort of like a nice to have and that, you know, that it, it, consumers say they care about privacy, but like they actually care about convenience and all that stuff. And I actually don't disagree with that. I think it's true. I think it's really hard to build, you know, privacy tech tools in the consumer space that people really want to pay for. Um, but I also think it's really easy to take for granted when you live in a relatively mature and stable democracy where you're like, is anyone reading my text messages? Like, I don't know, maybe like, do I care? Like, I don't know. You know, like the, the calculus is just different. And yeah, I think nobody cares about my cat gifs or whatever. <laughs> right, but I think that's the answer that most people have is like, 
who cares if anyone's reading my Gmail? Like they're just going to see that I like signed up for a Barry's membership, you know, like whatever. And they don't, and they don't care. Um, and I, 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 and part of me is like, you should have enormous gratitude that you don't have to care, right? That, that you live in a place where you feel secure enough that, you know, it's, it sort of feels like a whatever. And yet there are so many people in so many corners of the world for whom that is not the case, right? And for whom um, being able to, to communicate securely or transact securely, et cetera, um, uh, is, is, you know, a huge, huge challenge. And where, uh, you know, if their private data were to be revealed, they could potentially be at real, you know, sort of serious risk. So um, I think it's always helpful to kind of like check ourselves and be like, well, you know, privacy might feel like a nice to have here, but like in other places, it's not. Right. Totally. As an investor, though, how do you think about those different markets, you know, as you're evaluating a technology? Are you seeing things often, most often that are interesting to you bubble up, you know, like you said, from the developers who are working in conflict zones and and trying, you know, in a life or death way to solve these problems? Or are you seeing tech, um, you know, that's emerging maybe uh, in the U.S. or in places that, you know, have had much much greater access to resources um, to build and invest and hire for these sorts of things that then gets translated across uh, to emerging economies? Yeah, it, it, it is really a little bit of both. Um, you know, Megan, you mentioned uh, agentic tech, which is the sort of the category of investment and innovation that we are really focused on um, focused on helping to, you know, sort of seed and and advance in the world. We define agentic tech as technology that helps to support human agency. And that means individual rights and control over things like your privacy, your data, your assets, the information you consume. Um, and, you know, it's not a term that I made up. I, I learned it from some folks uh, in, who are in the sort of privacy researcher and, and advocacy space who have been using it for a while. Um, but I think it really does, you know, it sort of captures the essence of what we're what we're interested in. And so that is actually defined quite broadly. Um, my general rule of thumb is like, yeah, if it's a tool that gives users the ability to have more control, then it's probably headed in the right direction. And so that can include cybersecurity related tools that could include digital identity that could include things in the crypto and web three space that could also include, you know, things like deep fake detection. Um, so it's actually, you know, relatively broad, uh, in this, you know, we're on fund one, it's early days here in this first fund, you know, our focus, uh, for the most part will be on us based companies in part because, you know, we're a small team and, um, and, and that's, that is where, you know, the bulk of our relationships and networks are and so forth. Um, I really believe as an investor, you have to be, you know, humble about your ability to source where you can source the most high caliber deals. And I think, you know, I would be fooling myself to, to believe that I would be able to source the best quality pre-seed deals in Brazil if I have nobody on the ground there and, and I don't have deep networks there. So, so this fund will probably be overweight U.S., but it is totally consistent from a, from a philosophy perspective for it to be a very global mandate. And my hope over time is that as we grow and have a bigger footprint, et cetera, um, it can be an even, an even more global fund. Yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting about that, right, as, a, as an investor, you're thinking about sort of arbitraging opportunity where you see things before someone else does. And even if the fund is maybe a U.S. Um, mandated fund in the, in the early days, the global opportunity shows you what's going on maybe um, in, in, in an early way in other areas. So 
I think one of the more interesting things about Bitcoin and blockchain and sort of um, financial independence is you don't think you need it until you do. Right. So, you know, I think a great kind of story that came out, it's not an easy story, but, you know, I have friends who were in eastern Ukraine. They had to pick up and move like immediately, like life was normal. They were working at a tech company and then life was not normal and they became refugees. And, you know, in a time gone by, you you'd literally the only thing you would do is maybe grab what you could put it in your backpack in I don't know, whatever belongings you could and, and you lose everything. Um, and, and I have a number of friends whose story was instead of that, they actually were able to have a, a passphrase from their Bitcoin and they were able to actually keep their belongings and keep some level of independence as a refugee um, moving from their location. And that story has been replicated in China. It's been replicated over and over again for refugee statements. And for many of them, they felt like, you know, life was super normal. The financial system worked just fine um, until it didn't. Right. Um, and so, you know, how do you think about um, emerging opportunities where you where you go? Well, um, in the U.S., even whether it's um, VPN systems or whether it's Bitcoin and blockchain, um, what you might see some, in some other country actually has broader applications than just being in the frontier market. For sure. And look, for the most part, you know, we are looking for opportunities that do have a very broad application in the market and can be, um, you know, leveraged for lots of different use cases. And actually, to your point, Jeremy, you know, some of the some of the companies we invest in may be U.S. based companies, but they're very much operating globally and they're being used by a very global user base. You know, any company that's focused on on something like decentralized storage, like an IPFS, a Filecoin or or an Arweave, you know, you can use decentralized storage for tons of different enterprise and consumer use cases. But it's also been used in certain cases uh, by protesters in Hong Kong to upload copies of their publications and media before it can be censored by Beijing. The nature of decentralized storage is that it's extremely censorship resistant, right? And yet the companies, at least as far as I know, are not specifically going after like the activist market. And frankly, I don't think they should because that's a very small TAM. <laughs> but like the nature of how the product is built lends itself to those uses as well. Um, and that's often what I really like to see is like, you know, it might not be you, it might not be designed specifically for folks who are living under authoritarian regimes, but the nature of how it's built maybe makes it uh, uh, quite useful for those purposes. One thing I think is always really interesting as you think about, um, you know, this category of agent, agentic tech and, you know, the trade-offs between privacy and transparency really is oftentimes I think what happens in tech is something, some innovation is launched and, you know, makes its way out in the world and finds use cases that weren't necessarily those that the founders originally intended. And sometimes those are wonderful use cases, like the ones you guys have just uh, shared. And, and sometimes they're pretty, you know, nefarious. Um, actually, I kind of love this story. A friend of mine um, years ago worked at, at Palantir. Um, and uh, you guys might remember kind of, I think it was right before they went public, a couple of years before that, maybe they had all kinds of protests um, about the fact that their, you know, data mining and analytics technology was being used to inform the U.S., you know, the government drone system and potentially targeted killings and things like that. And I remember my friend saying like, yeah, my mom called me this morning and she just wanted to give me a heads up that she was going to be protesting outside my offices today. Um and I think, you know, it's a great example because there are so many wonderful use cases, um, you know, of how 
data mining and analytics and, and, you know, connectivity and things like that have enabled us, um, to create much better outcomes, bring more people, security, safety, et cetera. But you never know who's going to use it, right? Or, or, you know, what position the government even that you're selling to is going to take. Uh, that can change certainly also as regimes shift. A lot of people that, you know, maybe felt very comfortable selling into one administration, that changes when you've got a big shift. How do you guys think about companies and their responsibility to know how and where and police, uh, for lack of a better term, how the tech gets used. I, I totally agree that there are uh, so many different ways that technology can be used maliciously in ways that their designers did not intend, could not have even dreamed up, et cetera. Um, I think that there's a, there are ways um, as an investor and then also as a builder too, that you can, can mitigate this. And, you know, part of it some of it is inherent in the technology itself, right? Like if you're building facial recognition tools, then the chance of potential misuse or abuse is is high, right? Like they're inherent in the technology itself is is a certain amount of risk. There are a lot of ways that a company um, can arm themselves uh, to to ensure that their tech is used responsibly. And part of that is making really thoughtful decisions about who you will and won't sell to. Um, there's also lots of design decisions you can make in the in the creation of the product itself. And then there's also some governance decisions you can make, too. Right. You can write some of your values into your corporate charter, um, uh, create an ethics advisory board up front, create a function internally. That's entire role is like sort of risk scanning, uh, you know, across the horizon to, to sort of mitigate things as they come up. Um, and that's something that we try to work very actively you know, with companies to do and and help them um, troubleshoot in real time. And and we've had founders say, hey, I've been approached by XYZ customers. Like, how should I think about whether or not we sign a contract with, you know, with them and how should we think about it? And 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 um and we always appreciate that. Like, we, you know, it is a genuine conversation and companies need to, you know, need to grow. And and um and so we're always happy to be a th thought partner um, in making those decisions. That's one of the, both, I mean, it's, it's a challenge of being a minority shareholder on the cap table is like, you can't always dictate these decisions, right? So you have to have an enormous amount of trust with the founding team, um, that you are values aligned and you're on the same page. Yeah. I mean, I think the piece I'd add to that though, is like, for me as an investor, it also goes beyond the founding team. Um, because I think often, you know, you can have a great core, uh, you know, very aligned set of values, but you never know how that team is going to evolve. And the other thing is, as a company gets bigger, you just need more perspectives. I mean, this speaks probably also to the importance of building, uh, you know, companies that really also have diversity and inclusion at the forefront. Um, because the fact is, you know, if you're considering, uh, you know, you're a cybersecurity company that's thinking about selling your product into government, you know, if you don't have folks on your team that understand that context um, of how that is likely to be, you know, either used or misused, um, then it's going to be very hard for you to make that correct decision. And so I think the other thing we really kind of push our portfolio companies to start thinking about this at very early stages is, you know, who else, who are the other types of experts, perspectives, sounding boards that I can bring around um, to help us vet some of these decisions? Because some of them are just too big to be made by you know, one person, one founder, or, or even a small team of founders. Um, and I think, you know, you're never going to get it always right, but your odds are much higher uh, if you can ensure that you're surrounding yourself with, uh, you know, a, a 
set of perspectives that don't necessarily all align with where where you started and where you're coming from. Totally agree. And I also often look for founding teams that have, you know, real lived experience of the problem they're trying to solve, either from a personal perspective or professional, right? Maybe in their last role, they had to deal with XYZ problem and they observed it over many years and now have a solution to solve it, right? Um, but I but I look for that in part because in part because, you know, I think it's often very good for like customer empathy building and and things like that and really understanding the market. Um, but also because I think especially in some of these trickier areas that are fraught with a lot of, you know, ethical weight, um, if somebody has lived the consequences of some of the challenges they're trying to solve, they tend to be much more thoughtful and sensitive um, about what could go wrong. And if you don't have that perspective in the founding team, then I think you need to go out and get it as part of your um, as part of part of your product development process, or you know, as you sort of alluded to, Megan, expanding into a new market or something like that. You guys are right, but but I also, as the operator, I think there's a couple of things that I think about, like when you're building this technology. One, I, Kevin Kelly has this really great kind of view on futurism of technology, and he talks about how technology itself is neutral, right? Um, so so nuclear could be used for massive human expansion with energy. And it also can be used for the worst atrocities in humankind. The, the real question is, as the builder, what is the natural ramification if the vision actually succeeds? A lot of founders, especially young ones that, that I spend time with, oftentimes think about what the first move is, whether that's cybersecurity or whatever, and then think about an exit, um, not thinking about what does it actually, what does it mean if this becomes massively used in the world? And, and to me, one of the kind of great... Um, stewardship principles you have as a builder is are you building the things that are actually moving the world towards a direction that's better or are you building things that are moving the world to something that's neutral or negative i agree with everything you just said there the except that a lot of people like to say that that technology is neutral and i'm not convinced that it is I you know people <laughs> love to say like oh you know this the system is neutral it's just how how people use it that has some sort of moral valence and I think more times than not, like technology is really purpose built and, and that purpose and what it's like, that is inherent in the technology itself. Right. I mean, here's a very like easy example, but you know, like a gun is a form of technology. Right. And so, and there are people who love to say like guns don't kill people, people kill people, et cetera. But like a gun is a pretty purpose built form of technology. Right. And I think to try to deny that or to try to act like it's neutral, um, can lead to some to a lot of like intellectual gymnastics that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I I also tend to think it is used as an excuse n not to take some level of responsibility for like the havoc <laughs> that that gets wrought. Right? I mean, kind of the easy example here probably is um, you know Facebook or Meta and what social media has unleashed in the world, which you know arguably at the beginning was like a great fun easy way to kind of keep up with what your friends are doing and you know, now is being used by, uh, you know, governments to try and influence elections in other countries and uh, manipulate people and, and divide us. And I don't know that it's as easy as saying, you know, if you have a view to what it looks like at great scale, you're able to see that coming. I think a lot of it has to do with the people at the helm and how receptive they are to engaging other perspectives and, you know, taking a broader suite of views that recognize that, um, you know, the technology itself was built by people with a certain lens and a certain lived experience for a purpose. 
and that can, you know, run wild <laughs> once it's out in the world. And I don't think you're absolved of, you know, as a builder, having some responsibility in how that product gets used just because your intentions were good and your worldview is that the good outweighs the bad, right? Rockets can be used to go to Mars or rockets can be used to throw enormous amount of missiles. Like that, the technology is neutral. Like the rocket technology is neutral. It's what do we, in your point, purpose build it for? And then how do we enable um, thoughtful debate I think is actually the point. Humans are the ones that have um, the responsibility, not the technology. The technology is going to happen. AI is going to happen, right? Like it's just going to happen. Right. But, but it's being built by people who are training it on data sets with their own, in many cases, like biases, right? And, and gaps um, and inconsistencies. And it's, it's not, I mean, I, I disagree on that point. I think it's, I think once we start getting into things that people are coding and developing and making choices about what goes in and what stays out, it's not neutral anymore. I think it is fair to say that even a, you know, regardless of whether the technology itself has a sort of a, like a moral valence or not, and whether or not it was purpose-built, like it, it certainly can be used in good ways and in bad ways. I mean, this comes up a lot around privacy, right? Like the first thing that people often say is a counter argument for like why, you know, encrypted communications or, or something like that is like, well, it can also be used, um, you know, by by a terrorist group to organize or something like that. And that's, you know, that's absolutely true. Um, and, and I think there is, to some extent, analysis that has to be done, which is like, okay, on net, do we think this is ultimately, you know, a positive good for the world or not? Uh, acknowledging the fact that, there also are, are potentially risks and consequences that you might not like to see. And you kind of have to do a, a, a kind of risk benefit analysis um, in every case, you know? Well, may maybe this kind of logically takes us to uh, what maybe is the backstop in some respects and in some jurisdictions for this, which is kind of the role of, of policy and government, right? I mean, we're starting to see a lot more conversation about that in the AI example that we talked about earlier. Um, I am not super optimistic that uh, the best and the brightest um, of, of our generation are the ones necessarily sitting in Congress at the moment. Um, but I'm curious, you know, Zoe, you've spent a fair amount of time in that space. Um, I only briefly dipped my toe in it. But like, are there people in government that you feel like really understand this stuff in a way that they can be trusted to be the backstop and to create some guardrails where the technology itself can't? So I do think that there are some extremely talented and really sharp people, um, you know, in different parts of government who do understand at a deep level. I don't know if they're all sitting in Congress. Yeah. Most operators that I know on the technology side that are pushing the boundaries um, are not opposed to responsible regulation. Like the role of government should be safety of its people. Um, and, and so responsible regulation is things like, you know, making sure that nuclear, you know, technology is not in the hands of everybody, or um, maybe, you know, CRISPR technology that could maybe, you know, print um, a bioweapon, like there are responsible regulatory frameworks to do. Um, and, and, and then there's cases where it's just regulatory capture. I think in the financial service space, it's really tricky here, because, um, a lot of what makes sort of financial services broken is you have centralized power, centralized authority, which is basically built on regulatory capture. Um, 
that just a handful of big banks basically are systematically control kind of the entire system. On the other hand, you have the crypto space, which actually, for the most part in the US, wants responsible regulation. The number of good Bitcoin and crypto you know, entrepreneurs who are leaving the US because for, for too long, there hasn't been a clear regulatory framework. They're actually asking for it. They're saying, we want responsible regulation. We don't want you to close it off. But you, you know, the government was quite responsible with the internet, which is, hey, the internet can be used for good. It can be used for bad. We're going to lightly regulate it. We're going to have a light touch, but we're going to have clear frameworks. Um, financial services is a really good example where I think there's a desire for not a heavy hand, but a light touch and definitely not no hand because nobody knows. Um, Zoe, how do you think about that as, um, and as an investor? Because it's really even tricky as an operator to navigate that. In the past, a lot of major technological breakthroughs were um, born secret, meaning they were they sort of emerged in classified settings. Right? It was it was something that was built within DARPA or within you know some part of the U.S. government. Um, the ability to even work on that type of technology required you know massive barriers to entry, huge amounts of capital, etc. And so there was a very kind of controlled environment in which you know technology developed. Um, you know, nuclear is a good example of that, but lots of others as well. And what's so different about a lot of the big advances we're seeing today is that they are born open in the sense that, you know, anybody can, um, you know, play around with with TensorFlow or some other AI tool, you know, at home. Right. And and don't get me wrong, that's actually amazing for the innovation economy and amazing from the point of view of, uh, you know, really democratizing access to advanced tools. And um, and so I think in, you know, in general, like that, that's a good thing. But what it also means is that um, the ability for for those, you know, tools to be abused or, or just sort of um, uh, or to advance in a way that um, uh, is reckless, et cetera, is also much, much higher. We often are thinking about, you know, what are what is the regulatory environment and what are the ways in which it, it can potentially create tailwinds for certain companies and also and also headwinds. I think, um, you know, there are some firms that that truly do invest based on um, an expectation of, of, a, of regulatory change or opportunity. I think generally we we tend to not do that. You know, I think even if you kind of know directionally where regula regulation or policy is headed, um, it, it's hard to predict the time frame, um, especially in Washington when the government's about to shut down every other week, et cetera. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't like to make investment decisions off of a, you know, that rely on there being regulatory change. Um, uh, but I, you know, I, I think you have to keep that in mind, um, both as a potential obstacle, but also a source of opportunity, right? Like I actually think part of what makes, you know, investing in Web3 and crypto interesting is that, um, we're seeing a really rapidly evolving regulatory environment and that potentially will create some interesting opportunities. How do you think about it though? I, I mean, both of you, I mean, you, you guys spend lots of time in this space. Um, I mean, I, I can take it from our perspective. Like I think about it very similarly to you, I would say. Um, we don't look at regulation or at companies where regulation makes or breaks them, but we certainly have a view on which way regulation is likely to go if, you know, as you said, like the, the time frame looks pretty uncertain. And so we've backed another number of companies where I also think we've started to see, you know, here's an example is um, we're investors in a business called uh, Stride Health. 
Stride helps independent workers, non-benefited workers, gig workers find um, all kinds of insurance products. It helps them save. It helps them kind of, you know, get the suite of services that you would often get through a company in our kind of traditional World War II era um, W-2 benefit system. And part of what really, you know, got us excited to invest in that business was that we saw the size of that workforce and how quickly it was growing and how all the conversations that were starting to happen more at the state level, I'd say, than at the federal level, um, but around ensuring that those gig economy business models that provided people flexibility worked, but also ensured that people had, you know, kind of a bottom line of, of safety and security and expectations um, and being treated fairly for their labor. And so I'd say that was a part of our thesis, although it wasn't the driver, but we felt like this was a company that was going to be really well positioned when those regulations started to take place to help inform them um, and to, to craft, you know, as you alluded to, Jeremy, responsible regulation versus ideological regulation. And, and we saw some key kind of partners in, in, you know, a number of places that I think wanted to work on that with us. What about downside risk in the regulatory side? So the interesting thing is we were talking earlier about, um, you know, what are the what are the the cases where technology evolves to something bad? Um, there's another version of that, which is the technology could evolve to something good, but then um, be sort of up against a regulatory problem. So um, one of the more interesting cases to me recently that's evolved is I'm, I'm in love with this um, documentary that recently came out about um, Bitcoin use at a peer-to-peer level with no internet in Cuba. And, and so what's so fascinating is you have a bunch of folks that are sitting in a, um, uh, a highly controlled environment, I guess is the way I would say it. Um, and, and, and there is now one of the fastest growing areas of Bitcoin is in a place where um, people need to do literal bartering to survive because the economic conditions are so um, unique. Um, and, and so you might have a U.S. based company. There, there's a couple that I'm quite aware of right now that um, have self-sovereignty, hold their own keys, decentralized wallets in Bitcoin um, that allow for mixing so the government in Cuba can see everything that's going on. Um, and then you have regulatory um, um, things that are actually pushing on some of those companies to not allow that and are talking about shutting those companies down. So, so here's kind of an interesting case where the company's um, stated goal is actually to enable more freedom and independence in areas with authoritarian governments. Um, but the regulatory environment may not actually allow it. And so you have a down, you have a downside risk as an investor, even though you might have an upside risk, like upside opportunity um, is seeing technology advance, you know, ethics and the way we want to see the world work. So how do you balance those as as the investor? I think when there's, you know, sort of major potential downside due to to a regulatory action, you know, it, it can be hard to build conviction that that's like worth taking a risk on. And yet and 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 I, and I say that even as somebody who's like in the venture world where you're like, that's your job is like to take some pretty big risks and pretty big swings. I mean, I'm not familiar with that example itself, but I you know, I, I think it's really fair that, you know, the tornado cash indictments. Um, you know, caused a massive chilling effect um, across a lot of innovation and um, in the space, in the open source uh, community. And I think, um, I think that's like, that's a reality of like building in some of these really frontier tech spaces. Um, I, I, I think one thing that I've found both like interesting and kind of perplexing in watching the re- the the crypto regulatory conversation play out is like, doesn't feel to me like it was preordained that somebody like 
you know, Senator Elizabeth Warren would be anti-crypto. You know, like if you actually think about, you know, sort of disintermediating the big banks, giving individuals more control, et cetera. Like to me, it's like there could have been a different version of the universe in which like Elizabeth Warren was a massive degen, right? Like, am I wrong about that? Like, it's not clear to me. Like, that was her, that was the CFPB was like, you know, the big banks are, you know, are like hurting the little guy. We need to give power to the people, et cetera. Um, and so I've always like wondered why that is. Like, why is it that it fell this way and that way or versus that way? Could it have been a generational thing? But I don't know. I'm curious what you guys think. Yeah, it's a head scratcher. I mean, um, yeah, I agree. As somebody who got in into this rabbit hole after the 2008 financial crisis and thought, hey, like maybe we need to dismantle the big banks. So the same person who was kind of running that now is up against the technology that's actually doing that is is quite quite surprising. Um, on the other hand, one of the things I'm 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 most actually proud of in in government right now is, I mean, I've been in space for a long time and. If you looked at this five or 10 years ago, you didn't have folks in sitting government who were actually trying to, you know, push, especially on the financial services side, freedom technology, let's call it. Now you have a pretty good um, debate going on. And the, the thing that's quite interesting is it goes across political divides, like left and right. There are people who are really pushing um, Gary Gensler and others actually to have responsible regulation, not draconian regulation. Um, and, and there's actually a quite a deep understanding and, 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 you know, quite a few of the aid workers who work with them um, are super, super up on why this matters, why it's good for technology, why it's aligned with de democratic values. Um, and so I, I would say that's a shift that's happened over the last five years. We didn't have half a government thinking about it, interested in it, open with it. Even if we do have a few people that are head scratchers on the side of the aisle there, huh? Yeah, I, I actually think that's one of the things that makes me more optimistic, that it's going to take us longer to get there, but that we actually will have, I think, some sort of sensible framework um, around crypto regulation, uh, because you do see sort of unlikely bedfellows working on it. Um, I think the key tension, like as I see it, is beyond the ideological piece, and obviously any of these things can become <laughs> politicized in a weird way where, you know, you, you find the Elizabeth Warrens and folks like that sitting on the side of the aisle that you didn't necessarily expect. But I do think the the consumer protection piece and the trade-off between individual freedom and ensuring that people have, you know, transparency and access to enough information to make an informed, you know, decision, um, that I think is kind of one of the key pieces that, that, we need to solve. And, you know, maybe the technology has gotten big enough and widespread enough at some point that, you know, people have seen the rug pulls and you know, learned, learned where some of um, uh, the trouble zones are and, and who some of the bad actors are. But I, I think that's what drives some of, you know, the flip flopping we've seen, particularly at least on like the Democratic side is uh, yes to sort of individual access and reducing power of the banks, but but also ensuring that you know, we don't have situations like we had earlier this year where people had all their money at SVB and like um, suddenly, you know, FDIC insurance didn't cover it. Like there's no FDIC product for crypto. Right. Um, and so I think that's the worry is that you're going to have a number of people that are very, very exposed and don't fully understand the risk that they're taking um, because the companies are, you know, either intentionally or unintentionally not being, you know, not fully disclosing what they're doing with that that cash. 
part of the reason that I, you know, have really liked working on freedom tech or, you know, I would say agentic tech um, is that it isn't partisan, right? That there's people um, who care about, you know, advancing human agency who come at it from a very progressive perspective and often are thinking about it through the lens of, you know, privacy and civil liberties and human rights. And then there are also people who are coming to it from um, a real libertarian perspective and care a lot about digital sovereignty and personal privacy. Um, And I have always thought that was great. You know, I'm like, if everybody, if these two groups that usually don't see eye to eye on a whole lot can agree that things like, you know, digital rights, data ownership, privacy, you know, agency matters, you know, that feels like progress to me. I love it. I love it. And, and you know, we, we could talk about the regulatory side all day long, but in one in many ways, that's like the guardrails and the defense. But a lot of what all three of us are doing are, are what's on the offense to actually kind of push things forward. Um, Zoe, I, I'm curious, what, what are you seeing as somebody who's looking at a lot of deals at the frontier? Um, what's interesting right now? What are what are cool use cases that you're seeing Um that are kind of on the offense. I mean, often I think about it through sort of the frame of both, you know, kind of like defensive technologies that are trying to mitigate certain types of harm. So for example, like deep fake detection, I would put in that category. And then there's some that, you know, I guess I often think of it as being more like proactive rather than offensive because it's not always adversarial, but like it's proactively about, you know, sort of like protection of some of these values that we discussed. And, you know, I think on the, on Well, actually, on both sides, I was going to say the proactive side, but I actually think it applies to both, particularly with the explosion of interest recently in in AI and large language models um, and ways in which like AI assistants and AI co-pilots might come to really play a major role in our lives. I think there's a there's a real sort of outstanding macro question here, which is, you know, is it going to be possible for users to own their own training data? Uh, And I mean, sort of like your data exhaust on the Internet, as well as things like, you know, your likeness, your face, your voice, your biometrics, et cetera, which could be used to create a deep fake or whatever else, you know, without your consent, at least right now. And so, um, you know, I think some people would say too far gone, you know, that type of world where we can own training data like that doesn't exist anymore. I don't know. Like we're still, I think, in the early innings of a lot of this. And so I'm really interested in solutions um, that, you know, are giving users an enormous amount of control, you know, over first party data um, as it is used in the context of AI. So, you know, I'll give an example. Um, A while ago, we invested in a company called Anon.com, and they are focused on helping to manage, you know, the sort of identity and credentials layer uh, for AI co-pilots. You know, it's an enterprise data infrastructure play in many ways, um, and yet the outcome is quite quite good for users because it should give users an enormous amount of control over first-party data. So I'm really interested in things like that right now. I will say, you know, I'm also seeing a lot of interest in tools to give individuals control over their digital likeness. So finding ways to create a digital twin and then be able to, you know, sort of license out your vocal tracks and things like that and earn earn royalties. I think that stuff is interesting. I'm going to be curious to see where it goes. Um, But it's really the flip side of like, you know, deep fake detection. It's like, okay, well, actually, if we can use, you know, your digital likeness to create something in the world, like let's help creators to help monetize, you know, monetize that. 
So it's really, you know, it's sort of like new frontiers in all directions. And I'm excited to see uh, what people come up with. This has been an amazing conversation. I think probably uh, we could talk for many hours more about all of these topics. Um, you know, there are no easy answers, right? If, if there were, we would have solved everything by now. Um, but Zoe, thank you so, so much for joining us. Thank you for your perspective. Um, thank you for all these like fun catchphrases we've kind of had emerge here between <laughs> offensive tech and agentic tech and, you know, my what was it? Internet exhaust or digital exhaust? I'm going to use that. Well, Megan, I used to, I used to say anti-authoritarian tech because that felt like really specific and, you know, whatever. And I found that it really didn't roll off the tongue for most people. <laughs> and also it was kind of negative, um, which, you know, we don't like. We'd rather think about like what it is we're building as opposed to what we're, what we're countering. So, um, yeah, but yes, thank you. Um, no, it's been absolutely fantastic conversation. Um, thank you for coming on and chatting with us and sharing your experience. Um, where can people who are eager to learn more about you or learn more about Exanti find you? People can find me on Twitter at Z Weinberg and they can follow the fund um, on a variety of different social accounts, but our website is buildxanti.com. Awesome. Awesome. I love it, Zoe. We're super psyched you were here. Thanks for being here. Um, I personally, this guy wearing the, the Bitcoin shirt right now, am, am fan of the anti-authoritarian tech, but this was an incredible, uh, an incredible, incredible show. Um, I like the diversity of the conversation a ton. Um, and so we really appreciate it. And we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks, Zoe. 